I'm Parker Moss, Chief Commercial Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through conversations that we have on this podcast, we hope to share the benefits of genomic medicine with everyone. Now, genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger even, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. Now, we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Today, we'll be having a discussion about cancer biology and about the future of cancer research with really one of the world's most senior scientists and a true leader in this field, Professor Harold Varmus. Harold, welcome to The G Word. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thanks, Harold. So I honestly could spend an entire hour trying to summarize just what you have achieved in your long career, but I'm going to be disciplined and get down. Let's not waste time on that. Let's not waste time. I'm going to get to six sentences. So Harold, this, this is what you've been doing with yourself. You have been the director of the Institute of Health between 1993 and 99, those were critical years for the Human Genome Project. You were director of the National Cancer Institute. You were president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute, really one of the world premier cancer hospitals. You're currently professor of uh, medicine at Will Cornell University and Hospital in, in New York City. And I shouldn't forget, of course, you were the Nobel Prize winner uh, with Michael Bishop in, in 1989. So an amazing litany of achievements. Uh, it's a great honor to have you here. But you, of course, were not always interested in science. So le- let's hear how this story began for you. I'm not sure how far back you want to go. We'll at least begin after conception. I grew up on the south shore of Long Island with the children of immigrants as parents. And uh, my father was a physician, so I was obviously uh, considered in that, in that milieu to be destined for a, a life in medicine. But I think as early as my high school years, and definitely when I was in college and majored in literature and wrote a thesis on Charles Dickens, and even more uh, importantly, at graduate school in English literature, I had drifted pretty far from the idea of being even a doctor, let alone a scientist, a medical scientist. And um, uh, it was only uh, when I was a graduate student and began to be concerned about what I was actually going to do every day for the rest of my life that I began to think that maybe I shouldn't let that side of my brain that was interested in science and medicine go completely to rot. And so I decided to go to medical school, not sure whether I was going to end up uh, doing science or medicine or something entirely different. I believed in the American philosopher William James, who had told Gertrude Stein, who left medical school after three years uh, at the command of her faculty, uh, that uh, medicine did open all doors. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll end up being um, someone who interprets uh, literature through the me- lens of someone who understands medicine. Maybe I'll try to emulate uh, the kind of thing that psychiatrists like Freud were doing with literature. Anyway, I went to medical school, didn't do much research still because I was going to medical school in New York. I was still more interested in, in theater and opera in my spare time than working in a laboratory. But then um, a very important thing happened as a consequence of uh, geopolitical events, namely all male graduates of medical school uh, during the late 60s were required under what was called the Berry Plan to serve the U.S. government um, by either uh, working as a medic in the context of a war of which I strongly disapproved in Vietnam or work in the public health service. And... uh, the part of the, of the public health service that I aspired to, although I had no qualifications for, 
was the National Institutes of Health, where a substantial cohort of, of uh, smart, ambitious, academically oriented physicians would work for a couple of years taking care of patients at the clinical center at NIH and or um, doing laboratory research, in my case, learning how to work in a laboratory. So that was a pivotal moment for me. There were a lot of courses offered. I learned a lot about what was going on in medical science that I hadn't known before. Uh, I was for fortunate in being paired with an outstanding scientist, um, Ira Paston, who's still active in laboratory life today, I'm happy to say. And we worked on a terrific problem that he had opened up, namely how cyclic AMP regulates the expression of a bacterial set of genes called the lac operon. And this may seem like minutia to many of your listeners, but it introduced me to molecular biology at a very early stage. I learned the joys of, of uh, developing an assay that I could use to measure a really important thing in the history of in the life of any cell, namely, which genes is it going to turn off and on uh, in response to what, by what mechanism, and uh, it exposed me to the thrills of getting results and satisfying what Francis Crick used to call the, the, the gossip factor. I love telling people about the results, and um, I was hooked. But I knew that uh, having been trained as a physician and not trained as a geneticist uh, or a bacteriologist, I'd probably be better off doing something that was medically related. And um, these were really early days for molecular biology. There was no genome project. Nobody would, would even have proposed one. We had no tools for sequencing. We had no tools for recombinant DNA. It wasn't possible to work with DNA in a way that uh, became possible only um, 15 or 20 years later. So uh, it was important that uh, I find something that would allow me to get my hands on important things that I could do uh, with the, the few tools that I had learned at NIH. And I did find something. And I was not the only one to find it, but that was the idea of studying viruses that cause cancer. That's fascinating. Um, and how lucky for all of us um, that, that you did go into science. And, and clearly, it wasn't just Vietnam. And this was the era of Sputnik and the great space race with Russia. And of course, uh, with Nixon, the war on cancer. So it must have been a time of, uh, of, of huge acceleration in funding in research. So a good timing for you to enter the field. So you, you mentioned that study of lac operon, which, which I believe is the study of uh, lactose and glucose metabolism by E. coli. And then you went on to study a virus that caused sarcoma in chickens. So for, for people that are um, new to kind of lab work, maybe you can explain what is the purpose of studying these small model systems and, and how does that translate into, into kind of health? Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a very important point. But I think it's, it's critical that the general public understand that science is a long process and that science is a process that often begins with the, the art of the feasible, with the idea of saying, okay, I know that all cells, whether bacterial or human, have lots of genes and those genes may be off or on uh, depending on the type of cell in a human being or the conditions under which a bacterium is growing, what, what kind of food's available to it. And uh, knowing how genes are turned off and on is uh, one of the most fundamental mechanisms that we need to understand if we're going to, if we're going to think about uh, how how genes influence uh, the life of a cell. Just looking at a bacterium and 
uh, watching whether it lives or dies doesn't tell you very much. But uh, if you have tools that were being developed uh, uh, in the 60s and certainly after the structure of DNA had been elucidated and we began to have some feel for what a gene is and what it, what it is biochemically, it became possible to say, okay, I'm going to take some gene and place it apart from, from the genes in which it normally resides so I can study it in, a, in an isolated way and ask not about all genes in a cell, but about a single gene. It's commonly called reductionistic science. It's sometimes uh, referred to in that way uh, mockingly, but in general, it seems to me many of, the, many of the most important things we've learned about how complex organisms work, how blood is, uh, is able to carry oxygen, how as a fundamental thing like a red cell carries out its functions because we know something about genes called globin genes that make proteins that that coordinate the carriage of oxygen in the blood and when mutated are responsible for some of the most important genes that afflict mankind so you know the only way to do that and in the sense genetics molecular genetics in human beings to a very large extent began with this gene globin by pulling that away from the the rest of the genetic repertoire of the 21,000 or so genes of human beings and looking at large amounts of globin protein, we began to have an idea uh, of how studies of a single gene can make a huge difference uh, in the pursuit of medicine. I'll make another point here about model systems, that frequently you can reduce a phenomenon to an essential feature by saying, okay, I know that, that Gene regulation is important in all organisms, but what is the best place to study it? And that is true for the what I refer to as the lac operon, and you uh, appropriately uh, translated for, the, for for an audience that uh, is unfamiliar with it is as uh, a, a gene in bacterium that helps an organism metabolize uh, sugar lactose that is often supplied uh, as food for the bacterium. Uh, what is that? organism do if glucose is provided instead? Uh, well, it turns off the gene. And, uh, and the way in which uh, that regulation occurs as an organism is moved from one food source to another uh, is a model way to begin to understand how genes are regulated. Bacteria don't want to make an enzyme that they're not going to use. They want to make it when they need it. And uh, it turns out that a small molecule that was actually first intensively studied in mammals, a small molecule called cyclic AMP has the potential to regulate the lac operon. Well, that's interesting. You're taking a little chemical that's found in virtually all organisms and found in the growth medium in which uh, E. coli is grown, it's found in all human cells, and is known to be an important so-called messenger to tell genes when to turn off and on. We can study how that chemical works to regulate gene expression in an organism like uh, e. coli, where scientists uh, ranging from the Nobel laureates Jacob and Minot at the Pasteur Institute to many others have been isolating mutant versions of that gene that make uh, a molecular approach, a more chemical approach, so much more feasible. So E. coli is a bacteria, but of course you won your Nobel Prize for studying Rouse sarcoma in a virus. So this, this is, uh, I, I guess, another small model system. There aren't that many genes in a virus, so it makes it, I suppose, easy to isolate that function. Yeah, well, you're, you're actually getting at the point I held back from making earlier, 
because I was talking too long, um, and that is that uh, the, the reason I was drawn to tumor viruses as a thing to study is, is for the very reason you mentioned. That is, uh, you know, there were many reasons to believe that cancer uh, had some connection to to genes and um, and uh, probably to uh, to genes that are present in our own genomes. Um, but there was no obvious way to get into the problem and begin to do what I described for work on globin. There's no simple way to uh, to isolate the genes. But these viruses, and there were actually several varieties, still are several varieties of, of viruses that can cause cancers in animals, uh, appear to do so by infecting cells and introducing into those cells genes in very small numbers, three, four, five that uh, have, some of which have the potential to turn a normal cell into a cancer cell. But what would be more appealing? The virus packages up these genes for you, gives you a head start in trying to isolate the genes at a time when there were no recombinant DNA technologies to allow you to do it yourself. What ended up being, at least in the early phases, the most productive with respect to asking what genes in humans might be uh, important in cancer were the, the viruses we then called RNA tumor viruses. They carried their genes as RNA. And we now refer to them as retroviruses. And everyone on this, listening to this podcast will know about the most famous of those viruses, which had not yet at that time been discovered, virus human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, which actually is not, directly speaking, a, a tumor virus, but it is uh, the cause, as we know, of a, an incredible human scourge. And uh, this is another place to put in a plug for uh, doing basic science with, with uh, model organisms because we were, even though it was hard to identify the causative agent of HIV at the time, once we knew that it was a retrovirus, namely HIV, we were quite well prepared for dealing with the virus. We obviously have not dealt with it from certain perspectives very well. We don't have a vaccine even now. But... We did know once we identified it as a retrovirus, and by we I mean the scientific community, not me, there were certain features of the virus that allowed it to grow, and those features included uh, the use of a number of enzymes that the virus provided that could be targets for drugs that would inhibit the growth of the virus, and that has proven to be the case and, of course, incredibly beneficial. Amazing. And I, th I think it was very interesting how you used the word reductionism before. I I've noticed as I've, I've studied your career that you've always placed a huge emphasis on asking a right and very precise question. And interestingly, these days, there's a lot of emphasis on, on mass data generation. Some people talk about moving away from reductionism to radical empiricism, where we can generate a huge amount of data. In Genomics England, for example, we're just about to sequence our thousand trillionth base. So I'm, I'm wondering um, what you think of this view that uh, perhaps science has moved on from a reductionist phase and, and is in a radically empirical phase where discoveries uh, could come from just um, studying data on mass. Well, I have no complaint about uh, empiricism and collecting large amounts of data. It's proven to be incredibly valuable. What worries me is the, the neglect of hypothesis-driven research where you identify model systems, you, you select an important biological question, and uh, that is a very productive way to work. What the empirical data-gathering 
uh, a mode of science does provide is a lot of information to be thought about, either thought about by computers or thought about by human beings, to generate new ideas about how biology works. And uh, I just don't want to throw the, the latter part out. I go all too often to seminars where people simply show how much data they have and don't explain the question they're trying to answer or tell you what the data they've collected uh, tells us that would help us to answer important questions, which I think does bring us back to the question about, you know, the, the reason we got into this game in part was to say, well, what can um, working with a model system like this chicken virus, Rouse sarcoma virus, tell us about human cancer? And the first step is, can it tell us something about whatever genes the virus might carry to, to cause cancer in a chicken? And it, it wasn't too long before people with genetic uh, orientation had identified mutants of that virus that told us, yes, there was a gene in the virus that biochemists were able to finally show uh, what kind of protein that gene made and what kind of biological activity or enzymatic activity that uh, that the protein encoded by the gene had. And that, those were all incredibly important. But an equally important question is, you know, why does the virus have this gene and where did it come from? It doesn't, that gene was not required, for example, for the virus to replicate. Take away the gene or the gene, gene turns out to be uh, spontaneously uh, deletable, but the deletion mutants that lack the, the, the cancer-causing gene grow fine. So we don't need that gene for the virus to grow. Why does it have it? And it turns out that retroviruses, viruses of the class that Rouse sarcoma virus is included in, do frequently have such genes, and they seem to be the result of a complex molecular mechanism we won't discuss. Um, but they, in some sense, in retrospect, offered the tools for the first human genome project, long before people were thinking about cutting up the genome in some organized manner uh, and portioning different parts of the genome out to different sequencing centers and doing all the sequencing. Uh, what these viruses allowed scientists in my field to do was to say, okay, I've got a virus that has a cancer gene, which seems to have come from a normal cell. And that was the big initial discovery that Rouse sarcoma virus had a transforming gene. That gene could be found in a slightly different form, but a very, very similar form in normal cells. And when you began to compare the normal version from the, to the virus, to the version found in the virus, it was apparent that there were differences in, in the sequence of the gene. And moreover, those differences in the sequence of the gene made differences in the protein in a way that would affect its enzymatic activity, making it cancer-causing when it was in the virus and benign and uh, presumably useful in ways we now do understand to a large extent uh, when made in normal human cells or normal chicken cells. That seems to be the start of a, a lifelong uh, fascination with viral drivers of cancer. I know that when you were at the National Cancer Institute, you created a, a whole study on the rat sarcoma virus, and that, that still confounds cancer biology today. So, yes, these viruses do have cancer genes, but those viruses like Rouse sarcoma virus and the murine, some certain murine sarcoma viruses and feline sarcoma viruses and simian sarcoma viruses these are not agents that cause cancer in human beings. They introduce us to genes 
normal human genes, which, when mutated, can contribute to the formation of a human cancer. So um, it's not true to say that we that I've had a lifelong passion for studying how viral cancer genes work. Um, uh, certainly, one of my interests has been in studying those genes that have been found because they were captured by retroviruses and appeared initially long before we could do the kinds of things that, that human genomicists now do every day for a living. We couldn't in those days take a human tumor and sequence the genome and look for something interesting. All we could do is depend on other things like our friends, the retroviruses, to deliver the interesting genes to us. And it turns out, amazingly, that uh, many of those genes are clearly important. You mentioned the RAS gene. Well, yes, we first knew about the RAS gene because it was found in actually several, well, there, there are multiple RAS genes, but those genes, at least two of them, were found initially uh, as part of uh, cancer viruses found in rats that were carrying slightly mutated versions of the normal cellular gene. But it turns out that roughly a third of all human cancers have mutations in those genes. So incredibly important. And the, the big initiative that you mentioned that I, I started when I was the head of the Cancer Institute was designed to try to make drugs that would inhibit the mutant forms of, of the normal cellular RAS gene that were found in so many human cancers. And I know today that you were very involved um, in, through the New York Genome uh, Center in, in whole genome sequencing today. Um, so you're continuing to look at all types of variation, including structural variation there. I'd love to hear uh, the big questions that your, your institute in New York are, are focusing on at the moment. Well, let me say, first of all, that, the, yes, I'm glad you mentioned the New York Genome Center, which is an important institution in New York because it brings together the many uh, academic health centers in New York to do genomic work together, share ideas, share data, um, and do some important projects. Uh, I myself would not call, I would not call myself a genomicist. I'm interested in genomics. I follow it closely. I end up have, working with people who are genomicists in a very close way. Um, but I myself, my own lab, doesn't do that kind of thing. However, happily, there are now thousands of uh, people who study human genomes from cancer cells, looking for a wide variety of changes. It's not just changes, subtle changes in the base sequence. It's also rearrangements of DNA. And we've identified, um, we, they, all of us have identified a much larger repertoire of genes that can play a role in cancer through a variety of mechanisms. And we also find once you start looking at the whole genome, that there are lots of changes in cancer cells that may be doing nothing that are related to cancer. They may be, even be detrimental to cell growth. Um, so when you look at the whole repertoire, you do see a lot of things that, that may not be uh, directly related to the cancer itself, which obviously complicates the process. What we're doing at the Genome Center is, uh, is what I've been heavily involved in, is a project called Polyethnic 1000. It's a name which is slightly misleading, but the key word here is polyethnic. When I was uh, director of the National Cancer Institute, we devoted a lot of energy and money to a project called the, the Cancer Genome Atlas, TCGA, which was an effort to characterize many examples, a few hundred examples, 500 ideally, of each of the common uh, cancer types seen in human beings. Uh, when we did that work, we were 
often struggling in the initial phases and getting enough samples. And we took the samples that were available, which tended to be uh, samples from American and European hospitals um, and mainly from patients of Western European origin. So in trying to understand cancer, there are tremendous advantages and important objectives that get fulfilled uh, if uh, you look at uh, cancers from a much broader uh, spectrum of human beings, from, from Asia, South America, Africa, and everywhere else. Uh, and that can be incredibly illuminating. But individuals from regions outside Western Europe and North America were pretty uncommon, roughly 20, 25% of the total, which is not, it's neither fair nor optimal scientifically. So we've been trying to take advantage of the size and the ethnic diversity of New York to build a much larger database of the genetic abnormalities and the inherited genetic variants that are found in cancer genomes from all people, from all continents. So we've, this is expensive work, as you have heard, and I'm sure many of your previous uh, interviewees have commented, sequencing has gotten a lot cheaper from the days when it cost uh, hundreds of millions to, to, to sequence a genome. And now we believe that, uh, that the one to $2,000 whole genome sequence is within sight, which is a lot cheaper. But if you need literally tens or hundreds of thousands of, of cancer genomes to make a complete story, uh, it's not an inexpensive endeavor. But we're trying to do our part by uh, building a consortium of institutions that work together to try to uh, um, assemble the samples that would allow us to begin to say what uh, we're likely to find and what we can use as predictors of risk of cancer in, uh, in different, different ancestries. We're mainly operating on, uh, on donations. Uh, we're hoping to be better supported because I do think this is in the, this kind of uh, pursuit is in the national interest. Indeed, it's in the international interest. And getting genomics going in all countries in the world, even those that uh, are economically strapped and don't have as many trained personnel, is also going to be very important in this kind of endeavor. And I know you're working closely with the World Health Organization to advise them on their, their global genomic um, approach. But before we uh, go there, I, I would love to hear what you think some of the, the major um, questions that studying um, diverse ethnicities um, will, will uncover through genomics. Well, we know that, uh, that there are extreme health disparities that uh, are seen when you compare health outcomes um, either by looking at the incidence of disease or the, or the uh, mortality of disease, uh, when you compare individuals of different declared uh, ethnicities. Um, but ethnicities declared are not necessarily uh, ancestries that are uh, they're accurate. And it can be very difficult to distinguish between health disparities that are, that are the consequence of social factors, social determinants like access to health care, lifestyle, and many other things. So what we're hoping to do is to identify the genomic factors, the genetic factors that, that, that can account for some of these things. And people are familiar with it. We know of, that there are families uh, that have mutations in certain genes like the well-known tumor suppressor gene P53 
or the tumor or the tumor suppressor gene as BRCA1 and BRCA2 and several others that make a large difference in the risk of uh, experiencing breast cancer or uh, several other types of cancer. Many other risk factors are not as uh, powerful as those, but we don't yet have enough information about the contribution that in the inherited genome, the variations you get from your mother and father, play in the development of cancers. And those risk factors could be because of variant genes that control some fundamental aspects of, of cell behavior. They might control how an organism or how an individual responds to uh, DNA damage. Um, there are all kinds of factors that uh, can contribute to the, the uh, development of a cancer. One thing that we haven't yet mentioned that's incredibly important in thinking about uh, cancer genomics uh, are the immune responses to cancers. We know now that uh, if you can interfere with the normal breaks that the immune system plays on the immune response, we can see an enhanced immunological rejection of cancers in at least some cases. That's incredibly important, but we still don't understand why different people respond in different ways. We don't understand what specific foreignness, antigenicity of, of a cancer is being responded to when the immune system kicks in and, and helps to defeat a cancer. And those things can be um, elucidated by, by carrying out whole genomes. So it's not as though there's one part of the world that should be that, that's looking at, uh, at cancer genomics and one part that's looking at the immune response. These are closely interdigitated, in my view, and one, one way is to get at the question of how we can better exploit the immune response is to understand better what the potential antigenicity, for, uh, potential uh, reactivity or foreignness of, the, of a tumor might be, and how uh, inherited genes that affect an immune response or affect inflammation or affect uh, uh, other kinds of tissue responses to a tumor might help to keep a tumor from ever appearing clinically, even though cells with mutations are appearing all the time. Well, we're on a similar research journey over here in the UK, which is also a very cosmopolitan place. So maybe we can compare notes and we should collaborate on that. But uh, I think we've all been impressed uh, in the lower income countries uh, like in Africa, how uh, successfully they've been with sequencing through COVID and perhaps informed by Ebola and HIV beforehand. What do you think through your work in with the World Health Organization, some of the big challenges are bringing molecular diagnostics and genomics into lower income countries? Well, as you're pointing out, the public has been dramatically influenced by the COVID pandemic to recognize the significance of having uh, genomic analysis of virus strains uh, done everywhere. And of course, to do it optimally, every country or at least every region would have the trained people, the machines, the personnel for doing the sequencing of viral genomes and for interpreting them, putting the data into a good database that joined other databases, has the skilled uh, informaticians who can analyze the data and try to figure out what it all means and tell the public when to relax and when to be uh, wearing their mask, social distancing, and staying home. So that is a, an ideal environment for us to, to do what we've been asked to do by the Director General of WHO, namely to give him advice about technologies that aren't in such wide use everywhere. And I, I know we have the impression, because many of the new variants have been found in South Africa, 
that uh, that genomics can be practiced everywhere. It can be practiced, could be practiced everywhere, but the fact is that there are many regions of the world where samples are not being collected, they're not uh, easily transported to another place where they could be analyzed or to a laboratory locally. Uh, and uh, the big obstacles to getting that all done is, first of all, having political will, governments willing to make some investment in making it happen, assembling the machines and, and the talented people who can make these uh, technologies available. And that's, you know, that's not something undertaken lightly because you don't want to get bad data. You want good data. And uh, what we're trying to do as a committee, we're, we're a small committee and not necessarily all genomicists. We plan to move on to other technologies as time goes on. But what we're trying to do is to convince the director general and the other people at WHO that it's important that this is important enough, not just to control pandemics, but to manage uh, cancer uh, care and prevention, uh, to think about other pandemics, to think about a number of other diseases, including developmental disorders, some of which can be treated, as you well know from your own work in Britain, uh, if you know the, the genetic abnormality responsible for a developmental abnormality. And the technology also has... Uh, advantages in other spheres, in, in both uh, plant-based and animal-based agriculture, in many other disciplines, in uh, legal proceedings, and uh, in just increasing national pride. So having the ability to look at genomes, um, understanding your own ancestry, um, providing a number of, of practical things that can help uh, a culture and an ethnicity thrive, these are all significant, and uh, we do do think it's all achievable now that the price has come down so much and the technology has been made uh, more accessible to everybody. So the, the technology is certainly coming down in price, and that's pushing these uh, sequences closer to the patient out into the field. I expect uh, interpretation is still a bottleneck. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think that you, you know, you, one of the things we are concerned about is how uh, we train people to both handle the DNA, the DNA or RNA in the sequencing, but also to, to carry out the analysis of, of, the, of the data. And I think there is a big educational opportunity here that, uh, that uh, consortia of uh, countries can pull together and help to create uh, an analytic tools that will help in not just seeing what the answer is, but learning how to pull data sets into common databases that have appropriate safeguards for data privacy when necessary and for data sharing to ensure people who provided their nucleic acid that, uh, that scientists are getting the results that can be obtained. Uh, I know we're all concerned about privacy. Most patients are much more concerned that we get from the data the information that would potentially help them and help others. Yes, yeah, so I, I suppose far more locally, uh, one of the ways we're overcoming that um, interpretive bottleneck in the UK is we've centralised the interpretation for whole genome sequencing, which today is available to all cancer patients in England in acute leukaemias, all paediatric cancers, sarcomas, and very soon all gliomas and triple negative breast cancers and ovarian cancers, high-grade serous. So that, that, that's the approach we've taken here. Um, I wonder if a kind of centralised um, interpretation layer and storage is, is an approach that um, the World Health Organization would, would be interested in looking at to kind of scale that. I think that's an important point. I think some 
some things do need to be done centrally and, and more than just centrally within a country, but globally. And that's where I think the World Health Organization can play a major role. We, as you know, and we all know that uh, even the nomenclature for genes is still highly variable, non-standardized, and that needs to be straightened out. Uh, keeping the the numbering of nucleotides correct, so we have we have what we call standard genomes. Uh, they are properly numbered in different places because there's the potential for incredible confusion when you're comparing a data set of uh, six billion bases uh, from each individual, and you may be comparing a hum a, a tumor sample from a normal cell sample in the same individual. This is this is a non-trivial exercise. Um, so I do think that the convening that the WHO is famous for to be sure that we all agree on standards and regulation and legal implications of, of data, um, that's important. And then trying to organize groups for training, for data sharing. Uh, and then there's a big difference between certain kinds of interpretation for research purposes and uh, simply storing the data so that others who want to look at the data are getting the data in the right version. So there are many layers here. It's not a simple on-off switch. So we've been talking about the benefits, I suppose, of bulk DNA sequencing as that technology has come down in price and commoditized. But there are a lot of um, really cutting-edge technologies which are, are focusing on supporting the kind of functional analysis that you started your science career with. And I'm thinking here of CRISPR and single-cell sequencing. What are some of the, the technologies that you're, you're most excited about for helping to explore um, continue to explore function and functional genomics in cancer? I think one of the things we're all extremely interested in is the question of how cancer cells metastasize. And uh, we know that uh, you know, primary tumors can be removed by surgery and you, know, you don't need all these fancy approaches of immunology and, and uh, precision therapy if uh, you can simply remove a cancer. So the nature of the metastatic process is uh, of fundamental importance, and we still have a pretty incomplete understanding of how that happens. But there are a lot of reasons to believe that that when when cancers become metastatic, they do so through a, a process that resembles evolution, and that evolution occurs because of just continued mutations that affect the, the genes in a cancer cell. It occurs because there are selective pressures imposed by, uh, by treating patients with the various kinds of chemotherapies and targeted drugs. It occurs because the immune system is, is pressuring cancers to, uh, to evolve by selection of the cells the immune response doesn't see. It evolves because there are changes that we refer to as epigenetic, without changes in the bases, but changes in the chemical uh, surroundings of the bases, the way the bases are modified by certain chemicals or the way the proteins that uh, in which the DNA is wrapped uh, may be influencing expression of genes. So we're trying to understand all those things. Uh, genomic tools that have emerged you know, well beyond simple uh, DNA sequencing, including analysis of genomes by looking at single cells or by looking at the RNA that's present in single cells or by looking at uh, the way in which um, variations in the proteins that cover the DNA uh, may have shifted to allow transcription to occur. And these methods are proving to be incredibly important in creating a picture which is still far from complete about what we call the metastatic process. 
we know there's there's going to be a lot of complexity here because we know already that the tumors are not uniform. I think we some of us had a pretty naive idea that when you could when you had the tools of DNA sequencing and uh, uh, ways to analyze the uh, uh, the RNA content of a cell, the, the, the tumor cells might be different from the surrounding normal cells, but the tumor cells would be fairly uniform. They're not. They're incredibly heterogeneous and evolving all the time. And that creates, A, a big demand for looking at single cells for much more sophisticated ways to analyze those cells, ways to track the development of an early cell in a tumor to become a highly metastatic cell late in the process. These are the kinds of, uh, of developments that I think most cancer biologists are trying to get their, their hands on. Yes, absolutely. We are introducing a methylation sequencing into our pipelines right at the moment. So we're really excited about those chemical modifications. And you mentioned uh, um, the Cancer Genome Atlas, which I know um, that you led that um, during your time at the National Cancer Institute. And I think that did more than anything else to teach us about the tumor microenvironment and the whole spatial context of, of uh, tumors. We're, we at Genomics England are trying to do that ourselves. We're, we're adding imaging now to all of uh, our solid tumor cancers. We have tens of thousands of um, whole genomes that we're adding imaging to. So I would love to hear your advice. What, what do you think makes uh, for a great kind of open source resource like the one you created now many years ago? Well, uh, let me just say a few things. First of all, I didn't create TCG. I was on a committee that proposed it. It was initiated by my predecessors at the NCI. Um, I was there when a lot of the work was done, um, and I think we did a good job, but the predecessors, predecessors did as well. And it wasn't just the Cancer Institute, it was also the Genome Institute playing a role. And I would also point out that our goal in the original TCGA was to look at the cancer cells themselves, that the surrounding cells, the so-called tumor microenvironment, actually was a problem for us because we wanted to look at the cancer cells and some tumor samples are almost entirely composed of the microenvironment, but we certainly learned things about the microenvironment in doing TCGA, and it helped to spawn tremendous enthusiasm for trying to understand the immune cells, the vascular cells, the, the so-called stromal or uh, scaffolding cells that, in which a tumor is growing, and we have increasing appreciation for the conversation that's going on between the cancer cells, and those other cells, the immune cells, the vascular cells, uh, the other sort of scaffolding cells that, that, uh, that support the tumor. And all those play a role, for example, in the immune response, in the, in the chances that, a, that a, a primary tumor cell will get out into the vasculature and spread to other sites and cause metastasis. So, you know, I have no simple advice here. I think uh, you know, the new technologies that are allowing uh, what's called spatial transcriptomics, a fancy way of saying uh, the ability to look at different cells, cancer cells and immune cells that are in a three-dimensional uh, array. You know, we, we as scientists tend to break things up, put them into a solution of some kind and look at cells in a, in a mixture that is no longer reflecting the topology, the, uh, the geography of the original tumor. And it may be incredibly important to be looking at, uh, at the three, that three-dimensional tumor as it exists in the body. Uh, and there are now tools that are allowing us to, 
to approach that uh, with a lot more verisimilitude. I've heard you say many times that um, really understanding biology is a, a 20 or even a 30 year journey. And I'm just wondering whether you feel that um, that is accelerating, that the um, investments we're making in technology is actually accelerating the rate at which we can translate discoveries uh, into medicines for patients. It's very hard to measure that, Parker. I, um, you know, people tend to, uh, to when, you, when you ask how long did it take for something to happen, um, well, it depends on when you think the starting point was. You know, it was a long time ago that we first recognized that cancers existed. Important milestones in this story have to include things like uh, making a microscope <laughs> uh, or discovering the, the nature of, of genes and the, the structure of DNA and the, the ability to sequence DNA. And the time it took to go from having some notion of cellular oncogenes of the kinds that uh, we first discussed as having uh, been identified uh, in that era of retroviral-inspired uh, genomics. That was now 40 years ago, even a little more, before the first, the first genes like uh, this, the ABLE gene, which we now uh, use as a target for therapy that, that basically holds chronic myeloid leukemia in human beings at bay for a normal lifetime. That's a long time. It seems unacceptably long. And yet, you know, it was a great triumph. So I, I have a hard time saying, I mean, obviously we're generating more data. Got a lot of smart people at work. We could use more smart people. We could use more money. All these things could make things go faster, just as new technologies do. New technologies generate a lot more data but that data needs to be properly interpreted and, uh, and, and we have to, have, have to be able to find ways to get from the kinds of conclusions we draw from that data to things that actually improve the lives of cancer patients. And those are somewhat stochastic and they, they require information that we get from science. But I find it difficult to say uh, in any simplistic and accurate way that, that things are being sped up. It can't hurt to go faster. Uh, it can't hurt to learn more. I think that's common sense, but documenting uh, what we think is common sense can sometimes be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And we want more Gleevecs like that. So, I mean, is there anything in your vast experience of working in policy and leading all of these uh, incredible institutions that you've learned that makes public investment in basic research particularly useful to industry that, that accelerates uh, translation for patients? What, what, what do you think are some of the key lessons that we could take from your experience over here in the UK? Well, I think one thing you want to have is uh, serious, successful scientists running those institutions and recognizing when something important has happened. With a little bit of uh, hesitation, because I don't want to flatter myself, but I'll just use this one example, um, something that you know someone else might have done, but I was involved. I not, was not the only person to recognize that Jim Allison was onto something important but I knew that he needed to be in some place where he could begin to work with patients. If this were going to become reality, that is his approach to, uh, um, to immunotherapy of cancers. So I persuaded him to come from UC Berkeley, which has no medical school, to Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he would have access to lots of patients. And he came to Sloan Kettering and spent about well, at least 10 years there. Uh, and uh, that's when um, uh, his anti-CTLA-4 uh, antibody became recognized as 
not only a viable therapy, a great therapy for some patients, um, curing patients of melanoma and, certain, and some other cancers. But I think we don't want to underestimate the importance of being sure that at least some of the uh, direction setting in science is done by people who know enough about how science is proceeding to make, uh, to make decisions that are very influential. Because you know, there's no single person who's going to be trying to, uh, who's going to be able to identify what needs to be done to, uh, to succeed in our ultimate goal of improving health. We need to have a cohort of people who are running important institutions, either those that are grant making or those that are encouraging the, the creation of uh, research teams to place their money where the bets are most likely to pay off. And actually, you're saying that makes me curious because you've done so many things from basic biology to, to running enormous institutions. But one thing that I've noticed, you've, I don't think you've ever done is, is worked in the pharmaceutical industry or worked in, in drug discovery, drug development directly. Is that correct? That, that's correct. But I, but I have done a fair amount of work as an advisor in the biotech industry. And I have, um, on a couple of occasions, uh, worked as an advisor to large pharma. And it's been very interesting. I've never made the personal investment of being an employee of one of those companies, and I've never started my own companies. But I do think it's it's critically important that uh, those of us in academia maintain the right kind of uh, relationship. And when I'm at the top of an institution, uh, I shouldn't be uh, on the payroll in any sense of, uh, of any of these companies. I've always maintained a very strong uh, interest in, in uh, keeping my interests separate so that uh, I don't Stand, I don't want to end up being accused of, uh, of favoring uh, any particular segment of industry, but I'm a very strong proponent of our incredibly productive in, uh, industry. I, I've only seen both pharma and biotech get stronger over the years, and the things they've done have been amazing. Uh, and uh, one way to preserve the good relationship that generally exists, we hear, uh, we hear when things go awry, but uh, in general... Um, I've seen companies working with each other, uh, working closely with NIH successfully, uh, and uh, working with academic institutions. And uh, you know, there there certainly are exceptions, um, and uh, there are obviously a lot of dangers of having the ambitions of of academic scientists and uh, to train and to discover in conflict with the aspirations of industry, which are to make the world a healthier place, but also to make money for their stockholders. Sure. So you have seen so many things uh, over your long career in cancer biology. I'm, I'm wondering whether you feel now that um, we've reduced cancer to an engineering problem where we have all of the tools of the trade or like in other fields like neurology, there are still some kind of really big areas of kind of biological unknowns that we, that we uh, still have to uncover. What, what are the big questions that you would, you would like to see answered before you, you hang up your research boots? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, we've, we've defined the nature of the problem in, in much greater detail. But there's some fundamental things about uh, cancer biology that I was asking 50 years ago that we still haven't answered. Uh, what is the path from uh, being a normal cell situated somewhere in a tissue lineage to becoming a metastatic cell that kills you? You know, we have a lot more to say about how that happens. But I think many of the, of the critical steps in 
the transformations that lead to a, a, a lethal cancer cell have yet to be worked out. And I think people who are lay observers of this phenomenon uh, need to find some balance in the way they applaud the progress that has been made, but recognize that we're very far from being where we need to be. Cancer is still a major, in many places, the major killer. We've had some success in assessing risk and bringing down cancer incidence in some areas. Early detection works well for some cancers and very poorly for others. We have some successful therapies that that benefit patients for whom surgery is no longer an option. And that's been a major advance. But most patients who receive either immunotherapy or targeted therapies still die of their cancers. And um, that's not successful uh, at, one, at one level. So there's a lot to be done without, we don't have to undertake good radical changes in the nature of the questions we're trying to answer. I think there's still the fundamental ones of what molecular events account for the behavior of cancers. Uh, what kinds of steps can we take to interfere with the occurrence of those events that drive cancers and uh, reverse the effects of, uh, of changes that have occurred? Some of this is going to come about because we take a, um, a strict scientific approach to cancers, that just an effort to understand how cancers work, just as years ago we were all trying to understand how retroviruses and certain other cancer viruses cause cancer, led to the discovery of of cancer genes. Uh, The other things that will happen, will happen with increasing frequency, in my view, is trying to understand uh, what kinds of things we can do to reverse the biological events that we do know about. Because in many cases, we know there are events, uh, we just don't know how to to, uh, reverse them in a way that is meaningful for patients. Are there any kind of parting comments you would like to, uh, to make to um, many of the cancer participants of the Genomics England that are listening in on this, um, patients perhaps with lung cancer uh, or breast cancer or, or parents with uh, pediatric cancer, uh, about, about really the future of cancer research and cancer discovery? Well, I think I've said most of what I need to say already, but as I look at what has happened in the last 50 years or so, I feel we've made a lot of progress and it's it's right to be hopeful about the future, but I think we have to be realistic and, rep- and recognize that, that cancer is a phenomenon that represents an extension of things that happen normally. Mutations are essential to the generation of diversity in life, and mutations are what uh, drive cancers, and uh, there are many other factors that, that influence cell behaviors, and uh, trying to understand all those through the lens of cancer has been beneficial to all phases of biology and medicine. So um, I do think that in, that paying attention to what's going on in cancer research, investing in cancer research, doing cancer research, if you're, especially if you're a young person looking for fields to work in, these are all useful. Genomics has played an incredibly important role and will continue to play an even greater role because uh, as prices go down and techniques improve, we're going to get the kind of uh, picture of cancer that I hope our conversation has already revealed as important, namely an understanding of cancer not as by looking at the tumor mass, but by looking at individual components, the individual cancer cells, the, the components of the, the tumor microenvironment, and uh, pulling in uh, observations that come from other fields, from structural biology, from immunology, from 
many aspects of cell biology. All of these things are informing how we proceed. We wouldn't be anywhere without computers. We wouldn't be anywhere without DNA sequencing methods. That all not only gives me some confidence we'll continue to be uh, making progress, but it also makes me feel that uh, there's an awful lot left to do to answer these questions that continue to beleaguer us. So, Harold, my final question for you, and it is really the question that I asked Charlie Swanton, and he led me to this discussion with you, is um, who do you think would be a great person for Genomics England uh, and for us to invite onto the G Word uh, to interview next? Well, that's, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to answer that question because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't I don't want to drag one of my friends onto the show without their without their goodwill. But, uh, I, you know, I would suggest that uh, you keep an eye on what's happening at NIH, where um, there will be a new director and a new uh, the director of the NIH in general, a new director of the Cancer Institute. Uh, those would be good people to, to bring on to uh, discuss these things. We will certainly be keeping an eye on that. Thank you so much for your time, Howard. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion, to our listeners, to The G Word, and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes into mainstream healthcare and society. If you've got any views on this topic or you have a person in mind you would like us to interview, please do write to us at podcast at genomicsigland.co.uk. We really appreciate your support. Uh, thank you for listening to The G Word. And thank you most of all to Professor Harold Varmus for joining us today. It's been a real honor and pleasure.